Chapter Two, Part C of the Wealth of Nations, Book Five. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Stephen Escalera. The Wealth of Nations by Adam Smith, Book Five, Chapter Two, Part C, of the Sources of the General or Public Revenue of the Society. Taxes which are proportioned, not on the rent, but to the produce of land. Taxes upon the produce of land are, in reality, taxes upon the rent, and though they may be originally advanced by the farmer, are finally paid by the landlord. When a certain portion of the produce is to be paid away for a tax, the farmer computes as well as he can what the value of this portion is, one year with another, likely to amount to, and he makes a proportionable abatement in the rent which he agrees to pay to the landlord. There is no farmer who does not compute beforehand what the church tithe, which is a land tax of this kind, is, one year with another, likely to amount to. The tithe, and every other land tax of this kind, under the appearance of perfect equality, are very unequal taxes a certain portion of the produce being in different situations, equivalent to a very different portion of the rent. In some very rich lands the produce is so great that the one half of it is fully sufficient to replace to the farmer his capital employed in cultivation, together with the ordinary profits of farming stock in the neighborhood. The other half, or what comes to the same thing, the value of the other half, he could afford to pay as rent to the landlord, if there was no tithe but if a tenth of the produce is taken from him in the way of tithe, he must require an abatement of the fifth part of his rent, otherwise he cannot get back his capital with the ordinary profit. In this case, the rent of the landlord, instead of amounting to a half or five-tenths of the whole produce, will amount only to four-tenths of it. In poorer lands, on the contrary, the produce is sometimes so small, and the expense of cultivation so great, that it requires four-fifths of the whole produce to replace to the farmer his capital with the ordinary profit. In this case, though there was no tithe, the rent of the landlord could amount to no more than one-fifth, or two-tenths, of the whole produce. But if the farmer pays one-tenth of the produce in the way of tithe, he must require an equal abatement of the rent of the landlord, which will thus be reduced to one-tenth only of the whole produce. Upon the rent of rich lands, the tithe may sometimes be a tax of no more than one-fifth part, or four shillings in the pound, whereas upon that of poorer lands it may sometimes be a tax of one-half, or of ten shillings in the pound. The tithe, as it is frequently a very unequal tax upon the rent, so it is always a great discouragement, both to the improvements of the landlord and to the cultivation of the farmer. The one cannot venture to make the most important, which are generally the most expensive, improvements, nor the other to raise the most valuable, which are generally, too, the most expensive crops, when the church, which lays out no part of the expense, is to share so very largely in the profit. The cultivation of matter was, for a long time, confined by the tithe to the United Provinces, which, being Presbyterian countries, and upon that account exempted from this destructive tax, enjoyed a sort of monopoly of that useful dying drug against the rest of Europe. The late attempts to introduce the culture of this plant into England have been made only in consequence of the statute, which enacted that five shillings an acre should be received in lieu of all manner of tithe upon matter. As through the greater part of Europe, the church, so in many different countries of Asia, the state, is principally supported by a land tax, 
proportioned not to the rent, but to the produce of the land. In China, the principal revenue of the sovereign consists in a tenth part of the produce of all the lands of the empire. This tenth part, however, is estimated so very moderately, that in many provinces it is said not to exceed a thirtieth part of the ordinary produce. The land tax, or land rent, which used to be paid to the Mahometan government of Bengal, before that country fell into the hands of the English East India Company, is said to have amounted to about a fifth part of the produce. The land tax of ancient Egypt is said likewise to have amounted to a fifth part. In Asia, this sort of land tax is said to interest the sovereign in the improvement and cultivation of land. The sovereigns of China, those of Bengal, while under the Mahometan government, and those of ancient Egypt, are said, accordingly, to have been extremely attentive to the making and maintaining of good roads and navigable canals, in order to increase, as much as possible, both the quantity and value of every part of the produce of the land, by procuring to every part of it the most extensive market which their own dominions could afford. The tithe of the church is divided into such small portions that no one of its proprietors can have any interest of this kind. The parson of a parish could never find his account, in making a road or canal to a distant part of the country, in order to extend the market for the produce of his own particular parish. Such taxes, when destined for the maintenance of the state, have some advantages, which may serve in some measure to balance their inconveniency. When destined for the maintenance of the church, they are attended with nothing but inconveniency. Taxes upon the produce of land may be levied, either in kind, or according to a certain valuation in money. The parson of a parish, or a gentleman of small fortune who lives upon his estate, may sometimes, perhaps, find some advantage in receiving, the one his tithe, and the other his rent, in kind. The quantity to be collected, and the district within which it is to be collected, are so small that they both can oversee, with their own eyes, the collection and disposal of every part of what is due to them. A gentleman of great fortune, who lived in the capital, would be in danger of suffering much by the neglect, and more by the fraud, of his factors and agents, if the rents of an estate in a distant province were to be paid to him in this manner. The loss of the sovereign from the abuse and depredation of his tax-gatherers would necessarily be much greater. The servants of the most careless private person are, perhaps, more under the eye of their master than those of the most careful prince, and a public revenue, which was paid in kind, would suffer so much from the mismanagement of the collectors, that a very small part of what was levied upon the people would ever arrive at the treasury of the prince. Some part of the public revenue of China, however, is said to be paid in this manner. The mandarins and other tax-gatherers will, no doubt, find their advantage in continuing the practice of a payment, which is so much more liable to abuse than any payment in money. A tax upon the produce of land, which is levied in money, may be levied, either according to a valuation, which varies with all the variations of the market price, or according to a fixed valuation, a bushel of wheat, for example, being always valued at one and the same money price, whatever may be the state of the market. The produce of a tax levied in the former way will vary only according to the variations in the real produce of the land, according to the improvement or neglect of cultivation. The produce of a tax levied in the latter way will vary not only according to the variations in the produce of the land, but according both to those in the value of the precious metals and those in the quantity of those metals which is at different times contained in coin of the same denomination. The produce of the former will always bear the same proportion to the value of the real produce of the land. 
the produce of the latter may at different times bear very different proportions to that value when instead either of a certain portion of the produce of land or of the price of a certain portion a certain sum of money is to be paid in full compensation for all tax or tithe the tax becomes in this case exactly of the same nature with the land tax of england it neither rises nor falls with the rent of the land it neither encourages nor discourages improvement the tithe in the greater part of those parishes which pay what is called a modus in lieu of all other tithe is a tax of this kind during the mahometan government of bengal instead of the payment in kind of the fifth part of the produce a modus and it is said a very moderate one was established in the greater part of the districts or zemindaries of the country some of the servants of the east india company under pretence of restoring the public revenue to its proper value have in some provinces exchanged this modus for a payment in kind under their management this change is likely both to discourage cultivation and to give new opportunities for abuse in the collection of the public revenue which has fallen very much below what it was said to have been when it first fell under the management of the company the servants of the company may perhaps have profited by the change but at the expense it is probable both of their masters and of the country taxes upon the rent of houses the rent of a house may be distinguished into two parts of which the one may very properly be called the building rent the other is commonly called the ground rent the building rent is the interest or profit of the capital expended in building the house in order to put the trade of a builder upon a level with other trades it is necessary that this rent should be sufficient first to pay him the same interest which he would have got for his capital if he had lent it upon good security and secondly to keep the house in constant repair or what comes to the same thing to replace within a certain term of years the capital which had been employed in building it the building rent or the ordinary profit of building is therefore everywhere regulated by the ordinary interest of money where the market rate of interest is four per cent the rent of a house which over and above paying the ground rent affords six or six and a half per cent upon the whole expense of building may perhaps afford a sufficient profit to the builder where the market rate of interest is five per cent it may perhaps require seven or seven and a half per cent if in proportion to the interest of money the trade of the builders affords at any time much greater profit than this it will soon draw so much capital from other trades as will reduce the profit to its proper level if it affords at any time much less than this other trades will soon draw so much capital from it as will again raise that profit whatever part of the whole rent of a house is over and above what is sufficient for affording this reasonable profit naturally goes to the ground rent and where the owner of the ground and the owner of the building are two different persons is in most cases completely paid to the former this surplus rent is the price which the inhabitant of the house pays for some real or supposed advantage of the situation in country houses at a distance from any great town where there is plenty of ground to choose upon the ground rent is scarce anything or no more than what the ground which the house stands upon would pay if employed in agriculture in country villas in the neighborhood of some great town it is sometimes a good deal higher and the peculiar conveniency or beauty of situation is there frequently well paid for ground rents are generally highest in the capital and in those particular parts of it where there happens to be the greatest demand for houses whatever be the reason of that demand whether for trade or business 
for pleasure and society, or for mere vanity and fashion. A tax upon house rent, payable by the tenant, and proportioned to the whole rent of each house, could not, for any considerable time at least, affect the building rent. If the builder did not get his reasonable profit, he would be obliged to quit the trade, which, by raising the demand for building, would, in a short time, bring back his profit to its proper level with that of other trades. Neither would such a tax fall altogether upon the ground rent, but it would divide itself in such a manner as to fall partly upon the inhabitant of the house and partly upon the owner of the ground. Let us suppose, for example, that a particular person judges that he can afford for house rent an expense of sixty pounds a year, and let us suppose, too, that a tax of four shillings in the pound, or of one-fifth, payable by the inhabitant, is laid upon house rent. A house of sixty pounds rent will, in that case, cost him seventy-two pounds a year, which is twelve pounds more than he thinks he can afford. He will, therefore, content himself with a worse house, or a house of fifty pounds rent, which, with the additional ten pounds that he must pay for the tax, will make up the sum of sixty pounds a year, the expense which he judges he can afford, and, in order to pay the tax, he will give up a part of the additional conveniency which he might have had from a house of ten pounds a year more rent. He will give up, I say, a part of this additional conveniency, for he will seldom be obliged to give up the whole, but will, in consequence of the tax, get a better house for fifty pounds a year than he could have got if there had been no tax, for as a tax of this kind, by taking away this particular competitor, must diminish the competition for houses of sixty pounds rent, so it must likewise diminish it for those of fifty pounds rent, and in the same manner for those of all other rents, except the lowest rent for which it would for some time increase the competition. But the rents of every class of houses, for which the competition was diminished, would necessarily be more or less reduced. As no part of this reduction, however, could, for any considerable time at least, affect the building rent, the whole of it must, in the long run, necessarily fall upon the ground rent. The final payment of this tax, therefore, would fall partly upon the inhabitant of the house, who, in order to pay his share, would be obliged to give up a part of his conveniency, and partly upon the owner of the ground, who, in order to pay his share, would be obliged to give up a part of his revenue. In what proportion this final payment would be divided between them, it is not, perhaps, very easy to ascertain. The division would probably be very different in different circumstances, and a tax of this kind might, according to those different circumstances, affect very unequally both the inhabitant of the house and the owner of the ground. The inequality with which a tax of this kind might fall upon the owners of different ground rents would arise altogether from the accidental inequality of this division. But the inequality with which it might fall upon the inhabitants of different houses would arise not only from this, but from another cause. The proportion of the expense of house rent to the whole expense of living is different in the different degrees of fortune. It is perhaps highest in the highest degree, and it diminishes gradually through the inferior degrees, so as in general to be lowest in the lowest degree. The necessaries of life occasion the great expense of the poor. They find it difficult to get food, and the greater part of their little revenue is spent in getting it. The luxuries and vanities of life occasion the principal expense of the rich, and a magnificent house embellishes and sets off to the best advantage all the other luxuries and vanities which they possess. A tax upon house rents, therefore, would in general fall heaviest upon the rich, and in this sort of inequality there would not, perhaps, be anything very unreasonable. 
it is not very unreasonable that the rich should contribute to the public expense, not only in proportion to their revenue, but something more than in that proportion. The rent of houses, though it in some respects resembles the rent of land, is in one respect essentially different from it. The rent of land is paid for the use of a productive subject. The land which pays it produces it. The rent of houses is paid for the use of an unproductive subject. Neither the house nor the ground which it stands upon produce anything. The person who pays the rent, therefore, must draw it from some other source of revenue, distinct from and independent of this subject. A tax upon the rent of houses, so far as it falls upon the inhabitants, must be drawn from the same source as the rent itself, and must be paid from their revenue, whether derived from the wages of labor, the profits of stock, or the rent of land. So far as it falls upon the inhabitants, it is one of those taxes which fall, not upon one only, but indifferently upon all the three different sources of revenue, and is, in every respect, of the same nature as a tax upon any other sort of consumable commodities. In general, there is not perhaps any one article of expense or consumption by which the liberality or narrowness of a man's whole expense can be better judged of than by his house rent. A proportional tax upon this particular article of expense might, perhaps, produce a more considerable revenue than any which has hitherto been drawn from it in any part of Europe. If the tax, indeed, was very high, the greater part of people would endeavor to evade it as much as they could, by contending themselves with smaller houses, and by turning the greater part of their expense into some other channel. The rent of houses might easily be ascertained with sufficient accuracy by a policy of the same kind with that which would be necessary for ascertaining the ordinary rent of land. Houses not inhabited ought to pay no tax. A tax upon them would fall altogether upon the proprietor, who would thus be taxed for a subject which afforded him neither conveniency nor revenue. Houses inhabited by the proprietor ought to be rated, not according to the expense which they might have cost in building, but according to the rent which an equitable arbitration might judge them likely to bring, if leased to a tenant. If rated according to the expense which they might have cost in building, a tax of three or four shillings in the pound, joined with other taxes, would ruin almost all the rich and great families of this, and, I believe, of every other civilized country. Whoever will examine with attention the different town and country houses of some of the richest and greatest families in this country, will find that, at the rate of only six and a half, or seven per cent, upon the original expense of building, their house rent is nearly equal to the whole neat rent of their estates. It is the accumulated expense of several successive generations, laid out upon objects of great beauty and magnificence indeed, but, in proportion to what they cost, of very small exchangeable value. Ground rents are a still more proper subject of taxation than the rent of houses. A tax upon ground rents would not raise the rent of houses. It would fall altogether upon the owner of the ground rent, who acts always as a monopolist and exacts the greatest rent which can be got for the use of his ground. More or less can be got for it, according as the competitors happen to be richer or poorer, or can afford to gratify their fancy for a particular spot of ground at a greater or a smaller expense. In every country, the greatest number of rich competitors is in the capital, and it is there, accordingly, that the highest ground rents are always to be found. As the wealth of those competitors would in no respect be increased by a tax upon ground rents, they would not probably be disposed to pay more for the use of the ground. 
whether the tax was to be advanced by the inhabitant or by the owner of the ground would be of little importance the more the inhabitant was obliged to pay for the tax the less he would incline to pay for the ground so that the final payment of the tax would fall altogether upon the owner of the ground rent the ground rents of uninhabited houses ought to pay no tax both ground rents and the ordinary rent of land are a species of revenue which the owner in many cases enjoys without any care or attention of his own though a part of this revenue should be taken from him in order to defray the expenses of the state no discouragement will thereby be given to any sort of industry the annual produce of the land and labor of the society the real wealth and revenue of the great body of the people might be the same after such a tax as before ground rents and the ordinary rent of land are therefore perhaps the species of revenue which can best bear to have a peculiar tax imposed upon them ground rents seem in this respect a more proper subject of peculiar taxation than even the ordinary rent of land the ordinary rent of land is in many cases owing partly at least to the attention and good management of the landlord a very heavy tax might discourage too much this attention and good management ground rents so far as they exceed the ordinary rent of land are altogether owing to the good government of the sovereign which by protecting the industry either of the whole people or of the inhabitants of some particular place enables them to pay so much more than its real value for the ground which they build their houses upon or to make to its owner so much more than compensation for the loss which he might sustain by this use of it nothing can be more reasonable than that a fund which owes its existence to the good government of the state should be taxed peculiarly or should contribute something more than the greater part of other funds towards the support of that government though in many different countries of europe taxes have been imposed upon the rent of houses i do not know of any in which ground rents have been considered as a separate subject of taxation the contrivers of taxes have probably found some difficulty in ascertaining what part of the rent ought to be considered as ground rent and what part ought to be considered as building rent it should not however seem very difficult to distinguish those two parts of the rent from one another in great britain the rent of houses is supposed to be taxed in the same proportion as the rent of land by what is called the annual land tax the valuation according to which each different parish and district is assessed to this tax is always the same it was originally extremely unequal and it still continues to be so through the greater part of the kingdom this tax falls still more lightly upon the rent of houses than upon that of land in some few districts only which were originally rated high and in which the rents of houses have fallen considerably the land tax of three or four shillings and the pound is said to amount to an equal proportion of the real rent of houses untenanted houses though by law subject to the tax are in most districts exempted from it by the favour of the assessors and this exemption sometimes occasions some little variation in the rate of particular houses though that of the district is always the same improvements of rent by new buildings repairs etc go to the discharge of the district which occasions still further variations in the rate of particular houses in the province of holland every house is taxed at two and a half per cent of its value without any regard either to the rent which it actually pays or to the circumstance of its being tenanted or untenanted there seems to be a hardship in obliging the proprietor to pay a tax for an untenanted house from which he can derive no revenue especially so very heavy a tax in holland 
where the market rate of interest does not exceed three per cent, two and a half per cent upon the whole value of the house must, in most cases, amount to more than a third of the building rent, perhaps of the whole rent. The valuation, indeed, according to which the houses are rated, though very unequal, is said to be always below the real value. When a house is rebuilt, improved or enlarged, there is a new valuation, and the tax is rated accordingly. The contrivers of the several taxes which in England have at different times been imposed upon houses seem to have imagined that there was some great difficulty in ascertaining, with tolerable exactness, what was the real rent of every house. They have regulated their taxes, therefore, according to some more obvious circumstance, such as they had probably imagined would, in most cases, bear some proportion to the rent. The first tax of this kind was hearth money, or a tax of two shillings upon every hearth. In order to ascertain how many hearths were in the house, it was necessary that the tax-gatherer should enter every room in it. This odious visit rendered the tax odious. Soon after the revolution, therefore, it was abolished as a badge of slavery. The next tax of this kind was a tax of two shillings upon every dwelling-house inhabited. A house with ten windows to pay four shillings more a house with twenty windows and upwards to pay eight shillings. This tax was afterwards so far altered that houses with twenty windows, and with less than thirty, were ordered to pay ten shillings, and those with thirty windows and upwards to pay twenty shillings. The number of windows can in most cases be counted from the outside, and in all cases without entering every room in the house. The visit of the tax-gatherer, therefore, was less offensive in this tax than in the hearth-money. This tax was afterwards repealed, and in the room of it was established the window tax, which has undergone two several alterations and augmentations. The window tax, as it stands at present, January 1775, over and above the duty of three shillings upon every house in England, and of one shilling upon every house in Scotland, lays a duty upon every window, which in England augments gradually from twopence, the lowest rate upon houses with not more than seven windows, to two shillings, the highest rate upon houses with twenty-five windows and upwards. The principal objection to all such taxes is their inequality, an inequality of the worst kind, as they must frequently fall much heavier upon the poor than upon the rich. A house of ten pounds rent in a country town may sometimes have more windows than a house of five hundred pounds rent in London and though the inhabitant of the former is likely to be a much poorer man than that of the latter, yet, so far as his contribution is regulated by the window-tax, he must contribute more to the support of the state. Such taxes are, therefore, directly contrary to the first of the four maxims above mentioned. They do not seem to offend much against any of the other three. The natural tendency of the window-tax, and of all other taxes upon houses, is to lower rents, the more a man pays for the tax, the less, it is evident, he can afford to pay for the rent. Since the imposition of the window-tax, however, the rents of houses have, upon the whole, risen, more or less, in almost every town and village of Great Britain, with which I am acquainted. Such has been, almost everywhere, the increase of the demand for houses, that it has raised the rents more than the window-tax could sink them one of the many proofs of the great prosperity of the country, and of the increasing revenue of its inhabitants. Had it not been for the tax, rents would probably have risen still higher. End of Book 5, Chapter 2, Part C